the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, he is indeed, and here to say good afternoon to you five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. on the first day of the month of July, and welcome to uh, the official start of the second half of 2021. Trust you're doing well, and as we uh, roll into tonight's program, a lot to be talking about. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to talk about some shocking statistics in relationship to retirement planning, what's happening with the inflation rate, and how the lack of proper planning along with inflation can be economically devastating to Bay Area pastors. Augie Bow will join us later on in tonight's program to offer some insights. As we lead off the show tonight, joining me is professor, author, constitutional lawyer, and political commentator, frequent guest on Lifeline Down Through the Years. Pleased, as always, to have Mr. Joe Murray join us. And uh, Joe, a happy July 1st to you. July 1st. Happy July 1st, Craig. You know, for me, that means I get ready to start to pull out my Christmas stuff. So I- <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It takes plenty of advanced planning for you, I understand. And, and, and after all, there are less than six months now before Christmas. So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you're, you're staying on schedule. Now, let me that first begin, Joe, by apologizing. I'm sorry to bring you on the program on such a no-news day. I realize there's not much to talk about. So I no. thought we could either pick a topic, maybe, in, you know, uh, a home remodeling, maybe, uh, you know, how to change your oil at home, something of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something yeah, of use I'm to the always, listeners. Yeah, exactly. We can always play tiddlywinks, you know, that sounds fun. That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's break through a, a number of major stories hitting the news today and and i think the one that perhaps at least potentially short term will have the 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 um, most significant impact and one that um, certainly has around the periphery been talked about uh, ad nauseum since uh, well probably the 7th of november and that is what's going on with voting here in the united states of america yeah. there has been a, a pretty critical supreme court decision handed down today on on strictly uh, conservative versus liberal lines a 63 vote of uh, some are saying this is good it's upholding laws that have been passed some time ago in arizona addressing things such as ballot harvesting and um uh, incorrect precinct voting, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to back up for a moment before we break down the details of the SCOTUS decision. It 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 has to strike you, Joe, as it certainly does me and undoubtedly many of our listeners, that here we are, the United States of America, we get global credit for having perfected how to do democracy right. And yet here we are, 
well over 200 years after our founding. And I have to laugh how sometimes in years past, we've sent groups of delegates from the United States to third world countries, Central and South America, to help review their voting habits and to make sure that nothing goes awry in uh, their uh, experience in the Democrat process. And yet here at home, that is considered by many historically to kind of be home base for uh, for democracy. We are still trying to figure out what the rules ought to be when it comes to who votes, how they vote, when they vote, what happens to their vote. Is it me or is there good cause to be pretty embarrassed by the way things are right now? No, we need to be very embarrassed. Uh, over the years, uh, you know, some for convenience, some for ideological purposes, some out of pure stupidity. Uh, we have enacted measures that have watered down what it means to vote and how it means to vote in this country. Uh, it's not a very hard endeavor, Craig. Um, you go to the polls, you show your ID, and then you cast a ballot, one, hopefully, uh, and hopefully those that are you know laid to rest don't rise for the election day to vote. Uh, and then, you know, you go into the, the situations where, okay, what about some uh, scenarios if you are active military overseas, or if you are going to be on vacation, uh, you then need to have some type of absentee ballot voting. And what has happened over the years, we've seen a number of states start with this early voting, where now you vote starting in September, which I think is a complete abuse of the process. Uh, I think it's bad for democracy to have such early voting, because you and I both know we have been veterans of politics. If you have a presidential election and you vote in September, there is a lot of real estate to be made up between September and November. A lot could change. And if you cast your vote in September, you're, you're, you're basically selling yourself short and you're selling the country short. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have early voting. I think absolutely. But when, when you talk months instead of maybe a week or two, um, it, it becomes to be, you know, very problematic. And then you talk about what happened with COVID and what we're trying to see now, making this mass mail-in voting be the norm. Uh, and, and I'm not even talking politics, Craig. It's just logistics. Uh, when have we ever trusted the government to get something done right, especially something as monumental as this? We've seen the chaos. New York City, look what's going on there right now. The the whole ranked system, is, they had a cast-out vote, the test ballots. It's, it's basically chaos. Nobody knows who's on first, second, or third. And I think what we need to do is get back to common sense proposals. You need ID to buy a liquor bottle. You need ID to buy cigarettes. You need ID to play play the lottery. You need ID to get on an airplane. So yes, you need ID to vote. Let's forget about this early voting. When you know, pretty soon they're gonna have this early voting uh, in in March, uh, right after the primaries, and and let's get common sense measures that make voting something that it's supposed to be, something that is sacred and something that is respected, not something that's just put into the mail. Uh, and I think that's what we need to kind of get to. And I think that's where the Supreme Court is starting to take us. So we need to have voting that is secure. We yeah. need to have voting that is convenient. We need to have voting that is manageable. We need to have voting that will produce a result in which can not only be arrived at fairly reasonably early. And I, I you know, I... Having been a veteran of covering election nights for three decades plus now, I, I know what it's like to know by 1030 at night pretty much who won, who lost, 
and go to bed with the confidence that when you wake up the next day, you know what the future of your your city or your state is going to look like or your nation for that matter. Um, but but you know, th- th- there's also times when we've stayed up until three and four and five o'clock in the morning, uh, waiting for the counting of the ballots in Florida and the hanging chads and Supreme Court decisions and things of that sort. So we we know what it looks like when it's done smoothly. We also know what it looks like when it's not all that smooth and it's pretty disastrous. But I have to yeah. wonder, we, we've held to the notion constitutionally that historically the states established their own rules. And I'm not suggesting that there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with that. But you wind up with this checkerboard hodgepodge of this is acceptable in Arizona, but not in Nevada. That's okay in New Hampshire, but don't dare do that in Washington State. And heavens help you if you think of doing that in the state of California. Why can't we come up with a national agreement that, number one, and you've just touched on this, if we recognize that one of the most sacred rights we have as citizens of this country is the power to be involved in our own political destiny, it is governments of, by, and for the people, as Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address, then why don't we do something to enshrine protections for voting rights by making sure that there is a national voter ID card that when you register, however you register, that once they have confirmed that you are indeed a United States citizen, you are given a national ID or a national voting card, and you bring that with you, to the polling place the day that you vote. There are hundreds of company, uh, cu- countries on this planet that do it that way and quite successfully that don't have near the kind of mayhem that we do here in the United States. So my proposal would be, and I'd like to get your reaction to this. Yeah. One, we have a national voter ID. You know, I yeah, it's convenient. Register your car, register to vote. But, yeah, so long as that there is a process in place that is confirming before you are allowed to vote that you, in fact, are legally able to vote. And then I think, you know, pick, picking the second Tuesday or the first Tuesday of the month and having people take time off of work, there's an inconvenience to that. But I also agree with you that the notion of having two months to vote is pretty ridiculous as well because a lot can happen and change in two months' time. So why not have a three-day weekend and we say you can vote Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, pick one of the dates, and if you need to take a day off of work to do so, you can do so with pay, compel companies to pay you if you need to take a day off of work, if you're somebody that happens to have a schedule it crosses over the weekend and into a Monday. So we make sure that you have time to vote. We make sure that there is safety in voting. And then we set about guidelines that indicate where you can vote and how the vote is going to be counted and how it's going to be confirmed that the count is accurate. And it just seems to me that even in the Supreme Court decision today, yes, it says, okay, no ballot harvesting as the, the law has been established in Arizona. And I think the idea of just anybody willy-nilly can go pick up your ballot and drop it off, and there's kind of an open door for potential nefarious activities there. So no third-party ballot harvesting, good idea. I'm not so sure about the idea of invalidating an out-of-precinct vote. If my precinct moved and I went to the old place or you know something has changed yeah. and I'm not aware of it, I don't know that we ought to completely nullify somebody's vote but that said is this a scenario that particularly post 2000 election uh, 2020 election rather just cries out for a national voter policy 
Yeah, you know, let's start where where you left off. The whole thing about the uh, the wrong precinct, and I, and I get that, um, and, and it's a tough one. And that's where I think your idea of that national voter ID would come into place because basically, uh, hopefully, they have updated their voter rolls. Uh, and if, you know, and I've done it before where I've walked into the wrong precinct to vote. I, it was my old precinct before, and they moved. I walked in, my name wasn't on the books, and they said you're not here. Because, and the reason they were able to do that is because I brought my voter ID card that the county gave. Uh, and it's simple as that. They said, sorry, sir, you have to go over here now. Uh, that's why an ID or a voter ID card is so important. It would basically negate a lot of the innocent errors. I think what Arizona was trying to get to through is all these people that were voting in the wrong precincts that were not innocent errors and were somewhat deliberate. And that's where the balance becomes, because you have a lot of people who make mistakes, and then you have a lot of people who are deliberately trying to influence an election, and that is, to me, the, the, I, I agree wholeheartedly what you were saying about the voter ID card. There are, you know, I'm very much a state rights guy, but on certain things you have to have some conformity across the board. Uh, and you have to have some sense of order. And how I would see it is say, yes, you know, here is the federal mandate. We will allow voter early voting, but it can be no more than seven days and no less than three. Pick your poison, California. Pick your poison, New York. Pick your poison, Tennessee. And let the states kind of operate within a similar framework. To still give the states some flexibility because there are state issues that are involved in 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 developing voting uh, mechanisms and and, uh, the way it's done. Uh, But also make sure that it's not so outside and over the top where you have so many different things in so many different states that, that it really has just made a mockery of it. And, and I think once we are able to do that, then I think you'll start to see this system clean up. And, and Because right now, look at what we've had. We've had a presidential election. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to get into conspiracy theories, but no matter how you look at it, I don't think anyone can say that that was a secure election. I'm not saying that President Trump won or did not win. I'm just saying that with all the mess that happened, there's a lot of doubt about how the voting was done in that election. And that's not good for a democracy. We should be able to walk away from an election day and say, hey, our guy might not have won, but it wasn't taken. And I think you then look at what's going on in New York right now. This is the, the largest city in the world. I mean, this is this is kind of to be a country unto itself. And its voting is in a complete shambles right now. So what this is doing, partisan politics aside, it's sending a message to Americans that our voting is in the toilet and that elections don't mean anything. And once you go down that road, it shakes us to the core. Don't worry about what happened on January 6th. If people start to think that our elections are banana republic elections, then democracy is in peril. That's the real issue. We've got to get voting safe, secure, and we've got to get it to where it actually works. And, and, you know, at at the end of the day, Joe, I realize we have a few additional people in this country than we did when it all started back in 1776. Uh, But that said, you would think as time moves on that we would get better at this process, not worse. That as technology becomes available to us and becomes more and more advanced, that we can make sure that it is smoother and more secure, not less. But but sadly, and again, this goes back to the notion that, yes, there needs to be a certain degree of input from the states. But if we begin with a fundamental agreement that it is not residency in a state that ultimately uh, um, uh, allows you to vote, but rather 
your identity as a United States citizen, then let's begin with the notion that there ought to be some nod to federal standards since it is a federal, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm considered a, a resident of California, but I'm a citizen of the United States. If I go overseas, they don't ask me what state I'm from, they ask me what country I'm from. So if that is a prerequisite to vote in this country, then why not have either through a, uh, a congressional mandate or modification of the Constitution, if need be, a national guideline that sets as you say sort of sort of a broad cloth that has allowed local municipalities and states to decide do we want four days or two days things of that sort but that there is at least some consistency beginning with everybody who votes has to prove that they're eligible to do so and once having done so i don't care if we do what they do in um in uh, some parts of south america where once you voted they dip your thumb in indelible ink, and you walk around with a blue thumb for a couple of days, and this guarantees that you can't wash it off, and you can't walk in and vote twice. It's primitive, but very effective. And and maybe part of the challenge here is that we need to get back to more fundamental approaches to the way we conduct voting in this country, uh, instead of making things more complicated. All right, much more to say on this topic. With us today is professor, author, constitutional lawyer, political commentator Joe Murray talking about some of the big stories of the day. We've been in this last segment discussing the decision handed down just today by the United States Supreme Court that essentially says only voters themselves, immediate family members, or caregivers can collect and deliver an individual's ballot and therefore no third-party ballot harvesting as well as the notion, according to the law that's now been upheld by SCOTUS in Arizona, that if you vote out of your precinct, that vote is invalidated. Don't know that I agree with that, but we've got more to come. We'll take a time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with professor, author, constitutional lawyer, and political commentator Joe Murray talking about some of the big events of the day and their impact on your life. We've been discussing around the periphery the Supreme Court decision handed down today that basically upholds two Arizona laws, one that essentially says so-called ballot harvesting is illegal so that only a voter, an immediate family member, or a caregiver can collect and deliver a ballot to be counted, and then secondarily a law on the Arizona books that invalidates out-of-precinct voting. And I guess part of what we're hearing in terms of the uh, the Democrat response to this decision, particularly in relationship to some of the laws that have changed recently in states like Arizona, Georgia, and elsewhere, and that is the notion that there seems, on one hand, an attempt to open up voting for anybody that wants to show up, you know, vote early, vote often, kind of that, that <laughs> laissez-faire approach to all of this, and then on the other end, where we're trying to seemingly restrict it so tight that hardly anybody can get as, a, a, access to a precinct, at least not very easily, and I think we have to acknowledge not everybody can be there at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, and there are sometimes extenuating circumstances that, as you suggested earlier, I think, Joe, suggest that we need to have some methodology by which people that can't physically get to a precinct because of either family, job, or, or health reasons uh, can still vote, that votes can still be cast by 
um, American citizens living abroad or certainly by those involved in the military, and that once we have a count, that it's one that we can rely on. Do we even need to open up maybe a little bit of a a different approach to the whole ballot counting process to say that, you know, don't expect to go to bed at 10 o'clock, as I said earlier, the night of the election and know whether or not you're going your candidate won or lost, that we're going to say, you know, if it takes them two years to run for office, isn't it reasonable to say that they should have more than two hours to count the votes? Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, and let's look at the one that I think, uh, like I said, I think most people will agree that ballot harvesting is never a good thing. Uh, It's just you know, there's, you know, in the old legal ways, we used to have the chain of custody. You know, you were able to mm-hmm. validate that something was not tainted or something that was not tampered with because you had a very strict chain of custody. And as soon as that chain of custody was broken, that evidence was gone. Ballot harvesting does not lend itself to chain of custody. Uh, and that's the problem with it, is that, you know, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know what has been tainted, what has been tampered. Uh, and I think that's, that's problematic when dealing with such large quantities of votes. But the other part of that issue, which is the, uh, the wrong precinct, uh, I think in writing his opinion, Justice Alito was pretty clear, and, and, and he's a pretty strict, strict interpretationist kind of a guy. Uh, he said, well, you know, we have to look at, see what the laws were back in 1982 when, when that provision was added to the Voting Rights Act about what to do if there was an uh, incorrect uh, voting at a precinct. And his point was, at this time, the vast majority of our voting was taking place in person. So, yes, there was a, there was a greater inconvenience because it was taking place that day, uh, you know, where you had to take off work or you might have really been pressed for time. And his argument, from what I said reading the opinion, is that that's not the case right now. Uh, so the convenient, inconvenience factor is diminished. It's not so great as the deter because right now there are so many other options out there for people to vote that they should be able to know what precinct they are or incorrect that before uh, before the you know the, the last minute. And I think there's some validity there. Now I would go the other way because I think we need to kind of to kind of close that window because I think that's where trouble is too when you have all these these early voting and absentee ballots going on for months. Uh, but his point is simple that you know okay, it's not a great inconvenience in 2021 as it was in 1981 or 82. And, and I think he has a little bit of a, of, of a point there. But again, I think what's happening is people have so polarized this issue, you're either trying, as you said, to let everyone vote as many times as they want, or you're trying to let no one vote unless they vote for you. Uh, and I think we need to, you know, and I say this in vain, get the partisan politics out of this and just come up with a a comprehensive system that is going to allow flexibility but give some degree of conformity as to not have us constantly second-guessing the outcome of the election because that's where I see we're heading. When we we have two elections, two major elections, whether it's the U.S. presidential election and the New York City mayor's race, within less than a year of each other, uh, and they are up in the airs and they are being contested and doubted, that's not good. Well, and 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 to your point, there's another issue here at hand. I think that we're kind of uh, dancing around that needs to be addressed, and that is that as much as we've decried the process and uh, laws that are being changed, either that makes it more liberal or more restrictive when it comes to voting, there's there's another dynamic that really is not being addressed, and that is that quite frankly. 
and I forget who said this, but you essentially get the kind of politicians or the kind of government that you deserve. And by that, I mean not enough Americans take this process seriously. It's just too much of an afterthought. I mean, even Kanye West, when he ran for president, and I knew that 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 had to have been just a way to get attention. I don't think he was serious for a moment. But then to find out after he's talking about the need, we need to be changing America and improving things, and I'm going to lead America to a new direction and blah, blah, blah. And then he comes out and openly admits, oh, he didn't vote in the last election, and in fact, he has never voted I'm thinking, wait a minute, this guy's running for public office and he's never even gone into a ballot box to vote for somebody else, but you want me to vote for you? We need to start taking this a little bit more seriously. We need to be taking our citizenship more seriously. You know, the sad thing is, aside from those in the military that have served and in many cases given their lives for democracy or this country, in some of our recent military events, I'm thinking of, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, et cetera, or even more broadly, going back to when our freedom as a nation was seriously under threat during World War II, we, we took voting seriously, we took the process of self-governance seriously, and I just don't think we do anymore. I don't think that, that you know, even as we talk about, oh, let's lower the voting age to 16 so we can get more people to vote. If you can't get a, a 35-year-old to, to sh- bother to show up at the ballot box you know, one time every four years, do we really think that by getting 16-year-olds the opportunity to do the same, that they're going to be any different? I really think that part of the culpability here is with the hodgepodgey, cobbled-together system that we have, but a big part of the problem, and Americans need to own up to this, and that is that we just don't take self-governance and involvement in the political process that impacts the destiny and future of every one of us, and in some cases the world, seriously enough. You're right. Now, if you want to get those 16-year-olds to vote, uh, just make Election Day on a test day. I bet yeah. you they will flood the polls. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> they will flood the polls, but your point is spot on. Let's look at our priorities. How many people are going to stand in line for tickets to go to their favorite rock concert? Uh, how many people are going to stand in line for tickets for the Super Bowl? How many people actually go out of their way to make sure that when Ticketmaster, whatever they are, get those sales, they are going to stop what they're doing. They don't care if they're at work. They don't care where they are. They're going to get those tickets. It's priorities, Craig, and you hit the nail right on the head. Voting is not a priority for a lot of people. And then they want it to become convenient for them. So then maybe they'll go and vote. Maybe they won't. Uh, and, and I think that's the problem. It, you know, voting should never be convenient in the sense that we should have to give somewhat of a sacrifice. Uh, we should have to say, hey, look, we need to make this a priority. Maybe I won't, uh, maybe I won't get to watch my favorite TV show uh, because I have to go vote after work. But, you know, especially now in the day of DVR, I remember when I used to have to set the VCR, and that never, never went well. Never worked out. <laughs> it never kicked in. It never kicked in when it was supposed to. But you get 90 minutes of snow, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or it usually kicked in, you know, if it was a show was from 7 to 8, it would kick in at 7.55. Or it would kick out before the ending. But there's so many conveniences we have today uh, that voting should not be hard. It's as simple as that. You should be able to make time. Now, Brent, again, I agree that we could we can tweak the system to allow for some of the people that work more uh, not nine to five jobs that work swing shift or graveyard or whatever. There's there's a little bit more of a dynamic, but for the most part, it should not be hard to get people to the polls. And and, and the thing is, you're right. As long as we 
kind of think that voting is is maybe something we'll do, or if we have time, or if we just happen to think of it. Yeah, we're going to get we're going to get politicians that don't have our priorities in line because we don't have voting as a priority. Yeah, we, why should we expect them to care when we're demonstrating that we don't care? And 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 you know, I, I've I've you know toyed in my mind with the idea that well, maybe we put incentives in there, or maybe we put in disincentives to not voting, like you have to pay a ten percent penalty in your taxes if you don't. I mean, you know, I, I, a number of things have crossed my mind, but at the end of the day, you know, there's no substitute for somebody who values their citizenship and maybe part of the problem is that so many americans have become so spoiled they have no point of reference to compare how fortunate we are in this country to the experience of people in many other countries around the world so you know they don't value it because they don't see any value and that's that's a shame joe before time wraps up on us i i want to pivot to another topic real briefly and and with the disclaimer that i understand that this is very early on there's a lot of information that we do not have access to, but but I was struck today in the announcement of the indictment against the Trump Organization and specifically um, Alan Weisselberg. Of course, he is now uh, in court today, pled not guilty to charges of fraud and tax crimes. And I have to wonder, you know, for all of the hoopla uh, that this has been a battle in even the United Sup- States Supreme Court relationship to the former president's tax returns that has been enjoined for uh, you know years now that that suddenly what appears to be the most important crime that we can figure out is that maybe somebody took the company car home on the weekend and and didn't claim it on their taxes i mean i'm 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 I realize that I am sort of, you know, distilling this down into kind of a a base thing here, Uh, but it just seems to me that after all this time, all this hoopla, that the charges are linked to benefits paid by the company to top executives that were not, therefore, then claimed on taxes that, you know, I'm not saying that it's right. And 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 certainly yeah. somebody like Alan Weisselberg or Donald Trump ought to know that these things are in violation of tax law. But yeah. when 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 this uh, indictment was unsealed today, I thought, gee, is that all you got? I, I, is yeah. there something more here that we're not seeing? No. Is there is 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 there going to be another gotcha in the background? Is this something to try to simply put pressure on Weisselberg to essentially flip and go state's evidence because they've got more? More to come, but they need somebody that can give testimony to it. What's what's the deal here, in your opinion? Well, you know, you know that bottle of Perrier that they have in their company workroom is a very expensive bottle of water, Craig. So I tell you, when they give that and they don't deduct it, you never know. Uh, no, this is, you know, people are talking about Capone. You know, taxes what brought down Capone. Um, you know, let's again. I, I've been saying this all night, but let's put politics aside. Uh, I don't care if you love Donald Trump. I don't care if you hate Donald Trump. I don't care if you're indifferent about Donald Trump. But here is a man who has had the entire weight of the United States government. It's, it's basically spy network, it's security networks. Everybody in this government, from the NSA all the way to the CIA, from the top Democrats on the Intelligence Committee, they have dissected this man's life. They have done more to him than probably any president or probably any person in the world. And... This is what they got. This is, and it's coming from New York. It's coming from a prosecutor's office. 
this is all they got. I, there's nothing there, Craig. The only reason I can pretty much say that is because if there was something more there, Craig, they would have known it by now. Look how much we spent on Russia, Russia, Russia. Look how much we then spent on Ukraine. Look how much we spent with, with the leaks that were constantly coming out of that office. Um, and, and let's just assume for a second there might be something there. I think the American people are just so exhausted because they were told for the last four years that there was going to be this, this Perry Mason gotcha moment where all the evidence was going to come out and Trump's guilt was going to be undeniable. And all these resources were put towards it. Look at all those, what, 18, 19 attorneys uh, that were on, uh, on the whole Russia probe, and they got nothing. They always get nothing. So either Trump is the most brilliant criminal mind that has ever walked the face of the earth, or there's nothing there. Uh, either way, I don't see any. I've read the indictment. I've read uh, what was going on. It, it, it's really weak. And like you said, even if on in, in, in legalities they got him, people are going to look at that and say, heck, I've done worse than that on my taxes. Well, <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, you know, it, 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 It's crazy. I think this is a waste of taxpayer dollars in in an attempt to try to make sure that Trump is minimized in 2022. And I think in the back of everyone's head, they still don't know what 2024 is going to hold. Because they know that if he throws his hat in, there's really nobody that can stop him from getting that nomination. And I I think that, and I don't know if he's going to do it, but I so many people so on edge that they're not stopping this obsession. Well, and, and again, you know, as, as you alluded to, the notion that there was so much of a buildup to this over such a long period of time that, you know, we were expecting to hear, oh, yes, there's, you know, $300 million worth of, you know, unclaimed income and, uh, you know, all yeah. of this manipulation. You know, we, we kept hearing Cohen say, oh, uh, you know, he inflates the value of the real estate for the value of, for, for the purpose of getting loans yeah. and then deflates it for the purpose of, of taxes. And at the end of the day, we find out that, oh, his his uh, chief accountant took home a couple of pens and didn't claim it yeah. on on his tax returns. I mean, you know, again, there there we there there may be some surprise lurking in the background, but so far this really seems to have the distinct feeling of a is that all you've got? Well, we appreciate the time, Joe Murray. As always, your insights are very valuable, and uh, we'll continue to follow these stories and look forward to visiting with you again soon. There is professor, author, constitutional lawyer, political commentator, Joe Murray, with a look at some of the uh, headline news today and their impact on your life. 545 from KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic and uh, see what kind of an impact it has on your commute home tonight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, on this July 1st, uh, not only marks, of course, the midway point in the year and less than six months till Christmas, as Joe Murray so artfully reminded us, uh, it's also the beginning of a new quarter. And um, we've seen pretty amazing response on Wall Street in the beginning portion of 2021. In many respects, much better than expected. The S&P 500, for example, um, just this week crossed over yet another milestone high. And and all of that continuing to encourage investors. But there's another story going on behind the scenes that um, doesn't get nearly as much attention, but it really ought to. And that is the alarming number of individuals in America today, most notably pastors, that have insufficient amounts of money set aside for retirement, even as we go into a season that, yes, has seen spectacular response on Wall Street, but also, and we're all beginning to feel it, 
pretty significant increases when it comes to the cost of living. We've enjoyed historically over many years an average of 2% per year. But if you've been to the grocery store lately, or today with the increase in the gasoline tax in California filled up, you know that prices continue to go up, undoubtedly much faster than even your own income. What happens when you're a retired pastor and the totality of your income consists of the money that you've set aside while you were serving the Lord full-time in ministry and maybe a little stipend coming in from something like Social Security? The fact of the matter is that if you've not really significantly prepared and planned accordingly, a pastor's retirement can wind up being a pretty dismal experience. And of course, not only do pastors need to take responsibility for that, but more importantly, we as church members, those in the pews, we need to take responsibility as well to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to care for and love our pastors, not only while they're serving us full-time in the pulpit and in the, in the pastoral role, but once they retire as well. But how do you go about doing that? And, and, and what ought to be the approach when it comes to making sure that pastor is taken care of both now and in retirement. Well, joining us with some insights is Reverend Augie Bow. He is an MMBB retirement benefits consultant. He's a specialist in this arena. He's done it for, my goodness, better part of 30 years. He has a MBA from the University of California at Berkeley and is a certified financial planner. That means, in short, he's a really smart guy and joins us now to talk a bit about not only the impact of things like inflation on retirement savings, but how we can do a better job in caring for our pastors in retirement. Augie, as always, it's a great uh, privilege and an education to have you join us. Uh, should folks be alarmed when they look at what's happening with the, the uptick in inflation? I mean, my goodness, we're seeing in, in some arenas it hovering in the 5% range. I would imagine that does pretty significant damage to one's retirement savings if all of a sudden you're having to keep up with this kind of inflation when essentially you no longer have income coming in but for your retirement savings. Yes, uh, you're spot on, Craig, and thank you for having me on your program again. It's always good to chat with you. Um, pastors tend to be one of the lowest paying occupations in our country, and unfortunately, many pastors don't have anything set aside for retirement. And especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, where the cost of living is skyrocketing, it, it, it's something of concern. And that's where my organization, MNBB, comes in. We've been helping pastors set up quality retirement benefits since 1911. That's over a century of service, longer than most corporate financial institutions. So that time, that experience, that expertise really helps pastors uh, to understand how they need to save, why they need to save. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so critically important, as I alluded to a moment ago. It's not just seeing the erosion of those savings through things like inflation, but, but the notion, too, and I think a lot of people kind of have, have a, a disconnect from this, even with pastors. They think, well, once I retire, the Lord will take care of me. Oh, I've got Social Security. Everything will be okay. But they've never run the numbers. They don't recognize that, as the AARP has put out in a recent survey, you need to have, on average, in retirement, 75 to 80% of your income 
that you had when you were working full time. So let, let's use easy numbers here. If you were making $100,000 a year, I know that's not a lot of folks, but if you're making $100,000 a year working full time, uh, based on that kind of lifestyle, you're going to need 80 grand a year in retirement. And for a lot of people, that notion of being able to come up to 80% in retirement of what they were making when they were working full time is just a field too far. Yes, the the numbers are sometimes staggering, but MNBB has certified financial planners or CFPs like myself who will walk alongside the pastors and help them figure out how much they need um, and help them chart a path in terms of setting aside enough money so that they can afford to retire like everybody else. And ideally... It would be a combination of contributions, both from the church as well as from the pastor through payroll deduction. And, and for some churches, um, the amounts might be overwhelming. And we have a starter plan where a pastor can get started in a retirement plan for as little as $50 a month. So even somebody with a very tight budget can get started with the MMBB retirement for only $50 per month. So uh, that that makes it very affordable, very doable, and the important thing is that pastors get started as quickly as possible because this is a scenario where time can be your friend or your enemy. And, and I suppose, you know, the, the the notion we say 80% of the income in retirement, that seems to be daunting. It seems to be overwhelming. But that's really where the expertise of individuals like yourself and many of the benefits that are provided through MMBB can help climbing that mountain become so much easier. One of the things that you shared with me in the past, Augie, maybe you can elaborate on this. You know, typically when folks think about retirement, retirement planning services. They think about having to pay management fees or brokers fees, commissions, things of that sort. But it's very different when it comes to pastors and churches working with the MMBB organization. Tell us how and why that is. Yeah, we have some unique advantages compared to most other financial institutions, Craig. One is we've been around since 1911. We focus only on churches and pastors and staff of churches. So this is our niche. This is our specialty. We've been doing over a century, and we've learned a lot, and we feel like we are one of the world-class experts in this field. Um, John D. Rockefeller gave MMBB $7 million in the 1920s, and today our endowment's over $150 million. As a result of that, we don't charge any commissions. In other words, our services are free for churches. Let me repeat that. Our services are free for churches. And one other advantage is that most people have to pay taxes when they receive a retirement. When you receive a 401k, 403b, individual retirement account, the money goes in pre-tax, and most people pay taxes when they receive the money. But pastors who work with MNBB are able to receive distributions in retirement as tax-free housing allowance. Let me repeat that. Pastors receive distributions of MNBB in retirement as tax-free housing, which is a huge, huge tax savings, which secular plans cannot offer. Wow, I'll say. And I mean, you know, (laughs) 
that is significant because even if you once reach retirement are in, let's say, a, a minimal tax bracket of, say, 20, 25 percent, um, understanding that, that all of that essentially, quote unquote, goes right to the bottom line uh, is absolutely amazing. And this is something very unique and an advantage of working with MMBB. And I want listeners to understand this is not something that just needs to kind of be put onto the back of pastors. If you're in the pews, you love your pastor, you want to make sure that your pastor and his wife is cared for in retirement as you have cared for them as they've served the congregation uh, throughout their ministry years, then a call to Augie Bow at MMBB can be of huge value. As we mentioned, the service is absolutely without cost. There are tax advantages that are offered through MMBB, as Augie just pointed to, that are very unique and can be significant in helping a pastor enjoy a more comfortable lifestyle upon retirement. And for a church to step up to the plate, to be proactive and pick up the phone and call Augie and say, can you come down? Can you meet with us? Can you explain more? Can you answer some questions? And I bet, Augie, you'd be willing to do that. Um, yes, I would. I've worked with a lot of churches throughout the Bay Area, as well as the whole West Coast of our country. And I really appreciate your stating that it's not just on the pastor, because it's, sometimes it's awkward for the pastor to advocate for something for himself, himself. but it's um, up to the lay leaders, the elders, the treasurers, some of the key finance people to really contact me and see if this is a, a good service and a good program for the pastors of your church. And again, there's no cost or obligation whatsoever. And to schedule that appointment, you can just call Augie directly at 917 209 9911. That's 917 209 9911. Let time be on your side. Be proactive about this today. And, of course, we've just kind of uh, touched the surface of many of the services available through MMBB. And, of course, they can also provide things like disability and life insurance and and, and so much more. Over a 100 years' worth of experience and somebody like Augie Bell, who not only understands the pastoring side of all of this, the ministering considerations of all of this, but, of course, as importantly, the financial side with his background as a certified financial planner, can really lend to you the kind of expertise needed to make sure that you're doing the right thing. You know, the Bible says that a workman is worth his hire. And as a pastor is serving a congregation, I believe the congregation has a responsibility to care for that pastor and meet his physical needs. And certainly, it's not just while they're serving you, but even as they move into retirement. So call today, get more information, find out how MMBB can make the difference in helping set up a program for your church. As Augie mentioned a moment ago, it can be as affordable as 50, that's five zero fifty dollars $50 a month to get started. Call 917-209-9911, that's 917-209-9911, or more information on the web at mmbb.org, that's mmbb.org. And Augie, in addition to this organization being around for more than a century, I understand that you'll work with any church, any denomination in the greater San Francisco Bay Area and all of Northern California. That's exactly right. Our heritage, our background is American Baptist, but we work with almost any Christian church or Christian nonprofit organization. I would love to talk to any of the listeners out there. 
This is a phenomenal resource, an incredible tool that is absolutely available to you. And the information and the guidance is absolutely free. So don't delay. Make that call today, 917-209-9911 or online at mmbb.org. Our thanks to Reverend Augie Bell for being with us and that update here on this edition of Lifeline. All right, 602 from KFAX. Speaking of updates, let's get you one.